Stanford University. Uh, thank you, Dean Steipek, and thank you all for being here. And um, let me begin by saying I did an event in San Francisco around this film with the San Francisco Education Fund and also had a program on it that some of you may heard, have heard, which included Michael Kirst, who's Professor Emeritus in Education here at Stanford. And a lot of talk about this film, and it's been on the cover of Time Magazine, and it's been on Oprah, and it's uh, mentioned by Bill Gates, who put a lot of money into it, and uh, by President Obama. So it's had certainly a great deal of attention. And it's a heartfelt film, and a film that hits us, I think many of us, emotionally where we live, so to speak. The desire behind the film was really to start a conversation. And what I'd like to begin by having our panelists, and we're fortunate enough to have these three people here with us to talk about these issues, is a question of what that conversation ought to have if we were looking at this from a triage standpoint, what really ought to be foremost. And I'd like to begin with you, Valerie, because one of the mistakes I think that was made in the uh, San Francisco Education Fund presentation and that we made on forum when we talked about these issues was we didn't have any teachers. You're, even though awards weren't mentioned, an award-winning teacher. And if, even talk about this in terms of a wish list, perhaps, from the film and from your sense of what needs to be catered to and what needs attention immediately, what's right at the top? This is actually the second time I've seen the film. Um, the first time I saw it was three weeks ago. And I took a group of 14 students that are in my class that want to be teachers. And for me, what was really telling is what they took from that film. Uh, there wasn't anything new from the film for me. I knew a lot of this, this data. I'd heard of the rubber room. I'd heard these things. What stood out to me and what stood out to them was a quality teacher in every classroom. And that was overwhelmingly what they said. And they wanted to talk about how they could make that happen. And I think that's fundamentally what we're talking about here is that it's a civil rights issue, that every child deserves that. And how do we make that happen? Uh, again, these are the conversations that teachers have every day, that they want this to happen. And I think it really has to happen from teachers at the bottom. I think those of us that are passionate about that change, talking about it, getting together, Accomplished California Teachers as an example, talking about how we can do this and proposing those ideas. Because you're right, very often in the conversations about how to fix things, teachers aren't there. And I think we have a lot of ideas about how to fix things. Um, and again, talking to my students about this, they all have experience with being in a classroom with um, you know, a poor teacher, frankly. And one student said to me after the film um, in our debrief the next day, and she's actually undocumented, and she said, this made me want to be a teacher. And it made me want to be one of those good teachers. Mm. And to me, that was it. How can we put a good teacher in every classroom? Well, I, I think uh, most of us are in agreement that that's right on the top of the wish list and the priority list, and perhaps we can discuss, we ought to discuss, how not only we can get the best teachers in the classroom, but how we can perhaps weed out some of those who shouldn't be in the classrooms. But let me find out from Rick Hanischek and Linda Darling-Hammond if you agree that what we're talking about is perhaps effective classroom teachers right at the top. Linda? Well, clearly that's a you know key takeaway, and I'm I'm with Valerie on that, and um, that comes through to some extent in the film in the way that it's framed. What doesn't come through uh, is the way that we would get a good teacher in every classroom. Mm -hmm. And Finland was mentioned briefly, uh, but what you don't get from the quick 
mention of Finland is that while it is one of the most unionized countries in the world, 90% of the people in, you know, the workers in Finland are unionized, um, they put tremendous effort into training teachers. All of you here who are teachers will probably gasp when you learn that when you go to become a teacher in Finland, you get two or three years of uh, graduate level teacher education completely at government expense with a salary while you train. You get, uh, yeah, see, I'm saying. <laughs> uh, you, you get uh, a decent salary, but uh, wonderful working conditions, mentoring from your first day in the classroom that is set up in most parts of the country, uh, about 15 to 20 hours a week where you're collaborating with your peers on the development of curriculum and assessments, uh, developing, you know, the uh, context within students will be engaged in the kind of problem-solving curriculum that they have. Uh, and the kids will come to school fed, housed, uh, and healthy because the social infrastructure that Jeff Canada has to go out and you know, raise money for uh, by the tens of thousands per student uh, is built into the infrastructure. So uh, to get a good teacher in every classroom, we've got to make investments in some ways that we're currently not making investments in this country. And while the film does a great job of highlighting Canada's wonderful work, he's a good friend, I really appreciate what he's doing, um, and some other schools that are doing good work, it doesn't really get us to the issue of how would we get there in a systemic way like high-achieving countries have and like high-achieving states in this nation. You're talking about the whole socioeconomic infrastructure, aren't you, really? And Jeff Canada and his work advances that notion, too, that it's integral, that it can't be Absolutely. separate. Absolutely. I mean, he, he, will not be, he will not say that money doesn't make a difference yeah. because two-thirds of the money for his schools is privately raised. And Rick Hennesher? Well, it's hard to disagree that teachers are the key element. And I agree with Linda that the whole question is, how do you get from here to there? Um, my work has focused a lot on teacher quality and, and the impacts of teacher quality. One of the things that comes through from that is that we have a vast majority of our teachers are really hardworking and effective in the classroom. The other thing that comes across is that um, there are a small portion of our teachers that are actually harming kids. And our investment in schools, in uh, Linda's terms, is to allow them to stay in the classroom. The one key element that you get from international uh, comparisons is that high-performing countries do not allow bad teachers to stay in the classroom for very long. What this leads me to, um, it, it sounds kind of peculiar looking at the film, um, is back to the rubber rooms. Uh, the film had a picture of New York City rubber rooms, and the New Yorker magazine had a long story on the rubber rooms, leading New York City to close them down. Uh, but I'm actually a fan of the rubber rooms. Um, and I'm a fan because if you cannot eliminate uh, bad teachers from the classroom, the next best thing to do is to put them in a rubber room and keep them away from kids. And it turns out that that, uh, by all of the evidence we have, would make an enormous difference. I did, was quoted in the film, uh, and it, it comes from all of the evidence we've collected over the last 30 years on teacher quality, 
is that uh, replacing the bottom 6 to 10% of our teachers with an average teacher, average current teacher, not an exceptional superstar, could in fact lead to uh, achievement in the US getting up to the level of Finland. But you want, of course, inspiring and passionate teachers ideally. And when you see a teacher in front of a classroom reading a newspaper like you do in the Davis Guggenheim film, it's pretty disconcerting. The idea of finding the right criteria to decide who should be in the classroom and who should not be in the classroom is vexing. I mean, it's an ongoing perennial problem that educators face, that educating administrators face. I mean, let's talk about this from the perspective that the, what the film communicates. The film communicates that, and Rick, forgive me for putting it this way, but you know, you've got Hoover after your name, so people are immediately thinking you're the conservative up here. One of the things that That's struck me- That's why I'm the, sitting in the middle. <laughs> One of the things I was struck by, though, was Davis Guggen and I made a film called An Inconvenient Truth, and a lot of the conservatives, I mean, we're talking like Wall Street Journal, for example, were very angry at the film and thought it was uh, making us unnecessarily fearful and all that and not using good science. But a lot of these same people have embraced this film because the film seems to give the message that the unions are really the major problem and charter schools are the way we ought to be looking for weeding out bad teachers for getting better educational. Let's talk, because I know you've done some research on this, about really the overall efficacy of charter schools in the terms we're talking about. As I understand it, I had Michael Kerr say this on my program, it's about 80% roughly similar or almost identical to what we're seeing in public schools producing. Um, that's true. Um, I've done work and my wife has also done work on charter schools and you find that there's a small 20% that are doing significantly better than regular public schools and there's another group that's doing significantly worse than public schools. Um, the important thing about charter schools uh, combined with accountability is that parents have choices that they don't have in, if they're assigned to a local neighborhood school. The idea is that over the long run that provides incentives for schools to in fact improve, else they lose all their kids. And so the arguments behind charter schools are not that everyone is exceptional. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that at least in the startup phase, they aren't all exceptional. Uh, but over the long run, we would hope that they in fact uh, push the public schools and themselves to do better. Are they better, Linda, at finding the kind of teachers who perhaps should not be in the classroom because they have more autonomy? They can therefore weed them out and they don't have to be under the exigencies of the union and all of that? You know, um, there are, I've been studying issues of teacher evaluation for a long time and looking for more aggressive approaches to both supporting teachers and get, you know, counseling out those who shouldn't be there. Uh, but the interesting thing is that you have the same problems getting rid of poor teachers in southern states that have no collective bargaining, um, in private schools where there's no collective bargaining, as you do in many districts where there is. Um, I think union contracts sometimes are part of uh, a problem, but they're not the whole problem. The other parts of the problem are uh, a very weak uh, system for training leaders in how to do evaluation, uh, too big of a span of control uh, so that principals don't get in there and do the job that they need to do. Uh, so it is, you know, it's a, little, it's a little too easy to just blame the unions when there are many 
fingers that can be pointed in many directions. A lot of fingers, Some, excuse me, a lot of fingers point at tenure, though, and, and you say what to that? Well, I, I think the point was well made in the film that tenure came about for uh, good reasons, uh, which is that teachers could uh, both be fired for getting pregnant, they could get, be fired for getting married, they can still be fired in some places for not agreeing to vote for the right school board candidate. Um, there is a lot of politics in little tiny districts and big districts too that um, would allow one, would, would cause one to want to be sure there's due process in the, pro, you know, the processes that are used for personnel. Um, tenure in higher education is an entirely different thing than tenure in K-12 schools. Tenure in K-12 schools means you get due process, there's a cause. Or firing. The but you can get tenure in California schools after two years. It's essentially a lifetime position after two years. It is not a lifetime position, though. There are lots of districts that have put in place systems that are able to identify teachers who are doing poorly, give them assistance, and get rid of them without grievances if they don't improve, if they're purposeful about it. So I'm of two minds about tenure. I think tenure should be very hard to earn. I think tenure should be based on serious evaluation uh, and, should and should be a real bar of mastery. Uh, at the same time, I, I think it is useful for us to have a system in which teachers can't be fired willy-nilly for not voting for the right school board candidate, you know, not being willing to um, be on one political side or another, because there's been a lot of that that has occurred. Um, so, I think um, due process is reasonable. Uh, lifetime tenure is not reasonable, uh, which is not what teachers have in most states. Uh, and much more assertive uh, evaluation before tenure is absolutely necessary. Can we go to our teacher on this, Valerie? What about tenure? Uh, I mean, certainly it protects those in the ways Linda suggested. In fact, ideally, uh, it was set up when one thinks of the history here. At to my knowledge, when we think about higher education, the only tenured professor at Stanford who was let go was Bruce Franklin, uh, whom maybe Rick remembers or a few of you may have heard of. It's very difficult to fire a tenured teacher. And once tenured teachers are in place, often something short of moral reprobate behavior is about all that can happen to get them fired. You know, after watching the film, that was one of the first questions my students asked me, what is this tenure thing? And so that, you know, and I started explaining it, and I absolutely agree it should be more difficult to obtain. Um, I think it should be more rigorous. I think the structure should be in place like you were talking about in Finland where teachers are supported. Uh, and I also think along with that is the issues of seniority. You know, last year was the first year that I didn't get a pink slip because I'm always at the bottom of the, my department at my school. And I will be for many more years. And so that's also a conversation that comes up amongst a lot of us that are either new to the profession or we've changed, we're in our second profession. And that's, it's really hard to work hard every day knowing that, okay, this year am I going to be the one that's consolidated? Not only that, it's the sort of Damocles, but you have some of the more dedicated teachers, of course, who are the, have the less, least seniority and some of the more jaded teachers who have the most seniority, right? But that, but that gets to the fundamental issues that we're dealing with here. If you were talking about high-achieving nations in the world, Finland, Singapore, Korea, and so on. In fact, in Korea, when you come into the profession, it is a lifetime certificate. Yeah. In Singapore and Finland, they do not fire a lot of teachers, but what they do do is they build an attractive teaching profession. They you know, make it uh, 
desirable to be in the profession. They uh, prepare you well so that you can be good. They continually give you opportunities for improvement, about 10 times more professional development than here. Uh, so their goal is not to fire people out. Their goal is to build a profession of people who will want to stay in, will be able to stand, and will be good at doing it. So we can't fire our way out of the situation we're in when we support teaching so much less well in this country in general. It's got to be a profession that people like you want to come into and stay in. And then it's also got to be a profession that has high standards and rigorous So We keep hearing that, that the key to uh, good teachers, a lot of professional development, and as you suggest, uh, as well as mentoring, uh, but also key ingredients often that are cited have to do with smaller classrooms and better pay. And yet there's all this curious kind of contradictory evidence. There's that school in Massachusetts, the, the classroom that was written up in the New York Times, some of you may have read, extraordinarily successful school. The classes are huge. Private schools sometimes, teachers get worse pay than they do in the public schools, and some of them are very dedicated teachers, and, and they have rigorous standards for that, uh, evaluating them. Um, I don't know, let's hear from you on this, Rick, particularly on that question of evaluating teachers and what ought to be done. Uh, it's not just test scores. It can't be, can it? No, not at all. It shouldn't be, but it should be an element of that. Um, there are now fairly good systems developed to give you some quantitative information about teacher effectiveness. We've seen that in the LA Times published the names of a number of teachers amid a lot of controversy. Uh, but what they were trying to do is find the teachers that, in fact, got the greatest growth and achievement and those that didn't. Coming back to Linda's comment, um, I think that the good teachers in our school systems are woefully underpaid. I think that we have to increase the salaries to them. But we won't do it. We will not do that if we are told that to raise the salaries of the really effective teachers, we have to raise the salaries of the really ineffective teachers. Mm -hmm. Because that will not lead to a better teaching force by, in fact, raising everybody's salaries. Because there's, there's a, a, an economic theorem that I should give you. The economic theorem is that bad teachers like more money as much as good teachers. Um, and so if you raise everybody's salaries, what you do is lock in everybody into teaching, whether they're effective or not. And so you have to get back to evaluation. Um, the model that, uh, the best model right today is also in controversy. Michelle Rhee um, last uh, summer announced that she was letting go a number of teachers under the clause of their contract, that had a combination for those that you had test score information, a combination of growth and test scores. But even for those that you had test score information, there was a very elaborate evaluation system that called for multiple visits to classrooms over a fair amount of time with a set protocol of the things you were looking for. And that entered into it. That's, um, I think, a model for what we should be striving for. I'm not saying that she did it uh, when, well. Uh, you know, I've heard the argument many times from particularly callers who call into my program, and uh, maybe you can address this, Valerie, that one of the ways to pay teachers more and make it more of a profession that's more remunerative than it is is to cut down on the number of administrators, that there are too many administrators. I don't want to put you in the hot seat here, but this is what one hears a lot. 
Um, well, my principal is here, so no. I'm um, I actually, I actually think um, a school is only as strong as its administration, and by that, a, a strong school has a strong vision, and that comes from the administration. And a strong administration not only has a vision, but again, it works with these teachers to create that. And you know, I've you know, I've been at the same school now. This is my sixth year, and I've seen the changes. And I've seen improvements, and I've seen how that can happen. And so I actually think without the, the people that are outside of the classroom thinking about how to make these things happen and how to take all of our ideas and, make, and work that vision and use our talents, that we wouldn't be successful. I actually think that's a very key part of it. There's to be someone thinking through all of those things that, you know, I mean, I do this all the time. I, I see these things happen. I see what kids are doing, and I see what other teachers are doing. And it's all caught in my brain, and I want to make that happen. And that's where our administration really takes those ideas and puts them to work. But you know, when I, when I, and Linda, I want to go to you on this, because you mentioned Jeffrey Canada and the whole idea of really building a community that's supportive, that has the economic resources or the infrastructure socially to support the school. The thing that's so striking about that film, I mean, you see these kids waiting for a lottery and their future is dependent on it, and you know, you're, it's, it's a bit horrifying and ghastly, really. But the thing that's particularly dramatic about it is the disparity that we realize exists in have and have not communities. And someone like Jonathan Kozel, for example, has written brilliantly on this, I think, through the years. Isn't that really at the heart of what has gone wrong in so many of these schools that are failing? They're in neighborhoods that can't sustain schools, that don't have community support, that don't have the economics. Well, one of the unmentioned factors in the movie is really the extent of inequality and resourcing of schools that goes on in the United States. And that's, uh, again, a big difference between this country and uh, high-performing countries that also have more equitable achievement. So in um, you know, a lot of states, you have a three-to-one ratio between the highest-funded and the least well-funded um, districts, and even within districts, there has been a tradition of sending more money to the more affluent schools within a district than is sent to the least affluent, in part because there's a revolving door of beginning teachers in the least affluent schools, and they cost a lot less. Um, and then you can also just see in the film the lack of investment in physical plant and, and you know, class sizes and other things that can follow. Now, if you go to the homes of the, of the parents, too. Well, are, then you, you, you take know. the least well-resourced kids, right. and then you give them the least well-resourced schools, right. And then you, you know, slap your cheeks and say, oh my gosh, we have an achievement gap, as though there's a big surprise in that. Um, so that is, you know, one of the things that we don't talk about in the United States and need to talk about, because at the end of the day, we need to be, you know, equitably resourcing the schools. But we also have to be building a system in which you can get the kind of teachers that we're talking about into schools. And I'd like to offer a different model than Washington, D.C., uh, Michelle Re you know, did heroic work there, but uh, her scores went down last year. They haven't solved the problems of Washington, D.C. Um, but Connecticut, years ago, in 1986, took upon itself to really create a systemic approach to improving the quality of the teaching force. They raised salaries to the number one in the nation at that time. They raised standards at the same time, critical. Uh, it'd be, you had to take certain tests to become a teacher. You had to pass a more rigorous teacher education program. You had to learn about how to teach special education students for every teacher. By the way, they do that in Finland, too. 
You had to learn how about teaching English language learners. You had to learn in every subject area how to teach reading. Long before anybody else thought about doing this, um, you got uh, mentoring for every beginning teacher, and there was a performance assessment to get uh, a professional license, which meant you couldn't get tenure if you couldn't demonstrate uh, on an objective measure that you could, in fact, teach. Uh, and then they put in place a, a variety of other professional development plans. Over the course of a decade, Connecticut became the very first state with a large proportion of students of color and students in poverty to become the highest achieving state in the nation by 1998, on a par with Singapore and other countries. So we do that here. We have states that achieve as well as some other places. They've taken a systemic approach. It's included an equalizing approach to funding and investments in key resources. Uh, and they did that without charters. Now, I say that as someone who has helped to found a charter school, who uh, has sat on charter school boards. I see the value in good charters. Uh, but there are many good public schools as well that are doing the job. And there are systems of public schools that are doing the job. So we need to be looking out for how to build the kind of system that will work for all kids rather than a system that has you know, kids uh, waiting for the lottery ball to fall their way uh, as the only way that we you know, tackle these problems. I, I like the idea of, of changing the system, and you're offering a very sensible paradigm in that Connecticut example. And we're shortly going to go to questions from you in the audience. But I'm going to ask Rick a question. And how much underlying this crisis that we face in public education has to do with our own Something beyond the systemic, well, systemic on another level, our value system. You know, I think about books that I was weaned on uh, as a young would-be educator, Education in Ecstasy by George Leonard, uh, Summerhill by A.S. Neal. I mean, these ideals of making education fascinating and making it fun and making it challenging um, that seem to have sort of drifted from us uh, or that we seem to have lost. I mean, am I, am I swinging in the dark here? Well, that's, that wouldn't be what I would concentrate on first, frankly. Um, I don't think that the values, um, even though they were great when we were growing up, um, I don't think that they've gone all that far a track. I mean, we know that parents and, and uh, kids' own interests are really important in education. But in fact, that's not what we have control over in making policies and trying to improve the situation. What we have control over is what goes on in the schools and who's in, in the schools teaching kids. And that's why I would concentrate on that first, um, even if there's other things going on in society that's making it more difficult. Yeah, I just felt compelled to, to mention that. Uh, it's a little bit my hobby horse. But I've got some questions from some of you out there, and I'm just going to go through some of them. This is actually, they're, all, they're addressed to all of you. Um, one to, to Linda, but let me go to the all, all of you first. Uh, the movie is silent on where these great teachers will come from. Where will we find great teachers? <laughs> I well, think, I, I personally think there's an army of great teachers out there. But a lot of them are sitting right out there. Yeah, I was thinking that. <laughs> I was thinking that. The, uh, I, I'm, I'm sensing a lot of care and concern here, and I was actually thinking the exact same thought. <laughs> There's an army of great teachers out there. What we do is make it very difficult for people to get into teaching and make it more difficult over time by putting up more and more barriers to who can go into teaching. 
which has the effect of making teaching less attractive as a career. Um, and what, in my opinion, we ought to be doing is actually loosening up on who can get into teaching and being more serious about evaluating who's doing a good job and who we keep in teaching. That's the way lots of other professions operate. Should we be looking for wiener car drivers, Valerie? Is you know, I actually, in many cases, and I'm sure there are people that will disagree with me, I think in many ways it's too easy to get into. Um, and, you know, and sitting in my credentialing program, there were oftentimes people that I was thinking, I can tell right now that maybe you should find a new career. And I hate to say that. <laughs> But, you know, um, there's a reason that I'm not a consultant for Anderson Consulting anymore. Except I was okay at it, but I wasn't great. You know, and, you know, I was lucky enough to have a family that supported me to make a career change. Um, answering the question about where our future teachers are, I think this is actually, in many ways, why a film like this is a good thing. I think it starts a conversation about education, the profession, good and bad. Yeah, it's not a perfect film. Um, but it starts people talking about education. And, you know, sadly, but when something's on Oprah, people start talking about it. You know, and I hate to say that, but I, you know, someone told me it was on Oprah. My, you know, my friends that are always asking me kind of education questions but don't know very much called and said, I saw this thing on Oprah. And then they're like, and then I went to the website and there was this thing about donors choose and it could fund. And I thought, yes, we're finally starting to talk about these things. You know, something like donors choose, I use it all the time. It's great. And there's people, you know, um, Bill Gates and Facebook and John Legend who sings the song, they're starting to talk about that. And I think that in a way is how we can renew the passion for education and for people that want to be teachers that may not have thought that was a career choice for them because they were all going to go be the CEO of Facebook. Have you, have you seen Social Network yet? I have yet? not. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, Linda, here, here's a question for you and you, I think you answered this in part, but uh, this is someone who wants to know is any of the research at the School of Education scientifically rigorous enough that if applied in schools, we could be confident that it would result in school improvement? And if so, which research? <laughs> I want to answer the last question, <laughs> which I am going to answer, and then I'll say something about the other one. You know, there are, um, I, I agree with Valerie that in general it's, it's too easy to become a teacher, but there are some great teacher education programs. One of them is right here at the Stanford Teacher Education Program. And, you know, we've, we've done the value-added studies that we were forced to do by uh, Carnegie Corporation to look at the value-added gains of our graduates, and they, you know, perform very well um, in raising student achievement in all kinds of contexts. Schools like um, Summit Prep, which was featured in the film, 92% of their teachers graduate from the Stanford Teacher Education Program. Same thing is true at Hillsdale High School. <laughs> Somebody must be here from there. At Hillsdale High School, which is a regular district-run public school that is also achieving at high levels and raising achievement and closing its achievement gap. Um, and they, they recruit very explicitly, as does Berkeley High School and other places, um, from programs that really are serious about preparing teachers. And there's, I just want to draw a distinction between many of the silly and meaningless certification rules that everybody runs into when they try to become a teacher, which have nothing to do with whether you'll be a good teacher, and solid preparation, which actually gives you the tools and the ammunition that you need to do what you want to do on behalf of the kids. So I think we could do much better if we got tough with teacher education, if we had 
um, strong levers. There's actually something in California called the teacher performance assessment that some uh, colleges are using and alternative programs and charter school organizations that requires you to demonstrate you can teach before you teach. We need to get rid of programs that can't improve. Blow them up. If you can't train teachers well, you shouldn't be doing it. And then we should leverage people to do higher quality preparation, um, as well as all the other things that happen in the career. And I don't think we're going to get where we need to go um, in this country until we do that. Uh, you can change governance structures in schools. You can change tests. You can change curriculum. But unless you can produce a steady supply of excellent teachers um, who are really knowledgeable about what to do for all kinds of kids, you kind of can't get there. And what was that other question? <laughs> <laughs> and I would, I would nominate some of the research I just mentioned in, in, in response well, to Well, it was just question. a question about is the research rigorous, is there research rigorous enough that you can quantify it, that it can ensure you of the results that it's uh, presenting and that they're viable? I think that Rick could answer this one as well, uh, and lots of people in the audience. There is, you know, some research in education that is, uh, that has been uh, replicated often enough and used uh, methods that are strong enough over a period of time that there are findings that you can rely on, just as, as there are in other fields. And then there's a lot of research that is much less high quality. Rick? Well, I speak um, as chair of the National Board for Education Sciences. Uh, there's been a revolution in education research that's come from the Institute for Education Sciences in Washington, which sponsors the, is the federal sponsor of education research. Uh, the revolution has been to try to provide serious scientific Method, rigorous research akin to what we do in medicine to education. Uh, Ten years ago, people said you couldn't do that. Um, and now we see that you can do that. And you, it turns out that doing serious research changes some very long-held opinions. One that we've talked about right here. <coughs> Excuse me. There are two. Um, tremendous studies by the Institute for Education Sciences on professional development. Um, let me just describe very quickly. It's worth describing. The uh, argument has always been professional development for teachers neither gives the right material that teachers need, nor is it intensive enough. Mm -hmm. The Institute for Education Sciences went in and, and had a study where they had three groups of schools randomly assigned to get different uh, serious professional development on second grade reading and how to do that. They found a curricula, curriculum that is widely used for that. They assigned one group of students, uh, one group of schools, professional development that had 48 hours of classroom instruction in this teaching pedagogy and reading. Another second group of schools that had the 48 hours of classroom instruction plus 60 hours of classroom coaching over the year, two hours a week of classroom coaching. And then a third group that had just business as usual, the things that we don't like. At the end of the first year, what they found was that the people that had had the classroom instruction did, in fact, change their behavior in the classroom. At the same time, 
student achievement was identical in those two sets of schools to the one that had business as usual. In the second year of the study, the teachers reverted to their old method of teaching and, class, and student achievement was the same. What we found from there, there's another one on middle school math of the same character. What we found was that if you try to implement these programs from on top and tell people that you have to use this curriculum and so forth, it very seldom is implemented in a way that leads to the effects that we expect. And what, that, what this research has done is to change our perspective, or at least my perspective, a lot more to not regulating how to teach and what to teach, but to provide incentives for people to, in fact, perform well. This, this actually brings up another central question. I'll get to more of your questions from those of you in the audience. But I was here at Stanford a few years ago with some people from the Gates Foundation and the Social Policy Institute. And I know Diane Ravitch was here recently. And there's been this big debate, and she's been at the center of it, is whether or not the paradigm ought to be like a business. That is, you run a school, a public school like a business, you have essentially the same kind of structure. You have top-down management. You make sure that the management is accountable. You have, obviously, um, everything to whatever degree you can is transparent. And you show results. And the school is judged on the results that it shows. A lot of people who in the education community are very resistant to that idea. And yet there are some who, of course, are very strongly in favor of it. Just curious to get kind of a temperature from each of you on that. Uh, Valerie, what do you think, first of all? You know, this is something that I struggle with coming from a business background. Um, one of the things that I think exists in business that we could do a better job in education, in some cases even at the very micro level, is the accountability piece. I think that's very key. Um, I don't think that everything top down is the way to go. I think a lot of the ideas, again, come from the bottom. They come organically this way. Um, every school is different, every teacher is different, every classroom is different. So a lot of those ideas come up this way. Um, accountability, um, you know, I think the other thing in, in, in business often, in using the terms that I, Eric has used a lot, incentives, choice, choice for students, choice for parents, choice for educators, I think is very, very important. Um, and the idea that, uh, that everyone plays a role, I think, is important. And so um, if I think about the rigor of schools, I think we could do a better job of, of that accountability piece, which looks like a business. But at the same time, only, you know, uh, I struggle with this. I honestly do. I think about this all the time. Would it be better if we only did that way? And I, I, don't, I think there's a happy medium there. Yeah, maybe uh, Linda Rick might want to add something, and then we'll go to these other questions from, uh, from our audience. Well, for all our struggling, I agree with her completely. Um, uh, that a strong accountability and a lot of choice and a lot of local autonomy where people are allowed to deal to their own strengths and deal with the problems that they face are the answers. And, uh, that's very different than our regulatory uh, answer that we look for from Sacramento. We, we run this school system out of Sacramento, and it's just insane to think of doing that. And that's why we're 47th in California. I think there are other reasons for it, too, because <laughs> <laughs> other highly regulated states do a little better. But uh, I agree with you about much of what comes from Sacramento. Uh, I would just add one thing about this notion of incentives. 
I think in some cases people believe that um, teachers are withholding their effort, that if they had a carrot or a stick, they would try harder or you know do better. And most teachers are working as hard as they can in the context that they are existing with the tools that they have. And uh, you know, there was a recent um, study that came out of Vanderbilt that was much awaited about whether giving teachers more money for getting test scores up, uh, a sort of a merit pay bonus system was going to improve student achievement. At the end of the day, it didn't really make much difference. Um, and I think the reason for that is that uh, teachers get better when they are working with colleagues who are working in the same direction around the kind of vision that Valerie talked about earlier with the kind of knowledge and skill tools that they need to do a good job. Uh, and they are drawn to the profession primarily because they want to make a difference for kids uh, and not because they're going to put out effort if there's a carrot and withhold effort if there isn't. So uh, the incentives matter in terms of what we want to make attractive and desirable for people, uh, but we shouldn't assume that um, incentives can substitute for all of the conditions of good schooling in producing achievement gains. So I'm always impressed with how much Linda and I agree on these matters. Um, uh, you know, right down to the end that the Vanderbilt study I thought was ill-conceived in many ways because I do not believe that, um, as somebody stated, uh, teachers are keeping their A game in reserve waiting for a bonus. I don't think that's what's going on at all. But the reason why um, I'm still a supporter of performance pay uh, is no, has nothing to do with effort of the current group of teachers, but it has to do with whom you will attract into teaching and what the stock of teachers, who you attract and who you retain in teaching and trying to change the stock of teachers as opposed to the amount of effort. The selection is the important thing. Let me go to some more of uh, the questions from our audience here. Um, someone says, how can the successful models, KIPP and uh, Canada School be replicated when they are not sustainable for the teacher workforce as seen through the high teacher attrition? That's a tough one. That's a real I, I, there, there are successful schools that don't have that level of teacher attrition. So I think maybe that's you know another point to make, which is that what you don't see in this film are the other successful uh, public schools Charters and non-charters, district-run public schools that are getting equivalent results um, in ways that are a little bit more sustainable. The failing schools often have a lot of burnout factor. They have a you know an exceedingly high yeah. burnout factor. Yeah, in, with in New York City, just for example, in New York City, um, the Harlem uh, Success Academy uh, is grouped with a, a group of other schools serving similar students with similar demographics and there's all kinds of grading and rating that goes on in the New York Public Schools. About a third of those schools do as well or better as the Harlem Success Academy that are district-run public schools serving similar students. Um, and they don't require the level of fundraising that Jeff has put into that. What he's done is remarkable and you know wonderful. Uh, but there are community school models that Children's Aid Society has started that get comparable results for a fraction of the cost. So we should be worried about the sustainability issue. While we need to admire what Jeff has done, and it is a proof point, and it demonstrates what's possible when you wrap around everything that's needed for a child to grow up 
you know, uh, in uh, a supported way, we also need to be finding ways to do that uh, kind of work in ways that are financially sustainable and also sustainable for uh, the personnel in the building. Yeah, Valerie. I would add that one of the things that you see at the Harlem School and at KIPP and at the Price School at UCSD is this attitude of students. There's buy-in from families and there's buy-in from kids and teachers telling them every day, you're going to go to college, you're going to be a success. And when you see those kids coming out of kindergarten like, I'm going to college, that attitude is infectious. And I think that the more that we can do with that at, at all schools, it doesn't cost money, that kind of attitude. And I think the other thing the video that they showed is that giving access to all students for A to G classes that will get them into college. And that's a statistic that stood out to me at the schools that, you know, when you have 100 plus kids and only three of them come out, even able to apply to college. I, th I think that's a disservice. And I think that's one of the things that we're seeing in those schools that are successful. It's the attitude and the community buy-in and the kids that want to be there and their families are excited about it. I think it was really impressive. Could we do a better job at parents and communities? Absolutely. Well, I think that's a, a very positive and hopeful note for us to conclude. Let me just say by way of conclusion uh, a couple of observations. Um, first of all, I want to thank these three really excellent panelists that we have here. I want to also thank uh, Dean Steinbeck and her very able staff, and she's going to say some final words to you. But just, uh, I, I know there's some future educators in this room, and I want to say something to you because uh, Dean Steinbeck was nice enough to mention my book that just came out, but I also published a book with Stanford University Press about three years ago called Off Mic, and it was a memoir. And I talked about teaching, and I've been at it now for <laughs> four decades. Um, it's a long time. Uh, and for those of you who are aspiring, teachers and who are our future educators, I can say to you without any equivocation, it's a noble path. I believe that when I went into it, I believe it to this day. There are very few things that are as rewarding in terms of a profession than being a professional educator. Thank you so much. a very unpopular person stop uh, such a lively conversation like this. I do hope that this is just the beginning of a conversation that we will all continue to have. It's a conversation that here at Stanford we've been engaged in for quite a few years, but we're very glad to invite you all to work with us on something that I think the film uh, presents as a very serious uh, problem in this country. So it's not, it's not going to be us at Stanford who are going to solve it. It's going to be all of us in this country who are committed to making the kind of commitments and, uh, and, and caring, and I think as the movie said, about other people's children as much as, as our own. Because one of the things I like to say to people is their own children's future depends on other people's children's education. Thank you all for being here this evening, and thank you again to our wonderful panel. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.